Well, welcome back to the Women's Football Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, for listening. It's great to have your company once again. And now, obviously, due to the international break, uh, there are no WSL fixtures, no championship fixtures. So we thought we'd do something a little bit different on the podcast and thought we'd have a bit of a mini season review and dissect how everything's unfolded so far. And of course, we'll look ahead um, to potentially what's to come as well over the coming weeks and months. And I'm so delighted to say that joining me today to chat are two phenomenal journalists, so I'm sure need no introduction. We all know and love their work, but we have The Guardian, Susie Rack and The Times and The Sunday Times as Molly Hudson Susie and Molly, great to see you, great to meet you for the first time and thanks so much for coming on. No, thanks for having us, it's really great to be on. Yeah, ditto. Amazing. Well, Susie, I'll come to you um, first for this one. It's been a unique season, you know, on and off the pitch with everything that's been that's been going on in the world. Just what have you made of the season so far and as well, what has it been like covering women's football during what are we on, the 10th month of, of the pandemic? You know, what's this period been like? Ah, that's a good question. I'm a bit chaotic. I've seen way too much of this little room, which is my little home office, than I than I maybe would have liked to. Um, it's incredibly um, rewarding, though, and I feel incredibly lucky to still be able to get out and go to games, which so many people can't do. And when you're stuck indoors the rest of the time, you... You, I had a month off in January because I'm working on a book, so I was off. I didn't cover any games for January, and when you don't have it, you and you're doing what everyone else is doing, which is being stuck indoors. You really appreciate getting out to those games, even if you know the deadlines can be hard and it can be miserable weather, and you may have to travel weird routes to get places because of various COVID complications nowadays. Like being able to do that is really, really great. And then obviously the league is delivering um, because I think you know we would have by Christmas were saying it was a two horse race between United and Chelsea and now it's completely blown open. City are right back in there. Um, you know, Arsenal have hopes because results have gone various unexpected ways of getting Champions League and that that makes it great to watch regardless of what's going on off the pitch. And Molly, I guess much of much of the same for you as well this year. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's a bit like what Susie was saying. You appreciate it more, but I also think the fans probably appreciate it more because where they would maybe see some of the things that we see by attending a game, those little things that maybe you miss out on, it's really only us that are able to bring them that because you won't, like as Susie was saying, when you're watching things off the TV, like everyone else, you do miss miss out on certain things and, and that's something that we can bring and that insight that we can bring from the stadium. And I feel like, yeah, it's it's a total privilege that we're able to do that. And in a way, it's sort of taken on more importance because of the fact that nobody is allowed in. And, you know, for me, I've really, really enjoyed the Women's Super League, particularly this season, how competitive it's been. Um, obviously, we've had like an influx of new signings, particularly from abroad and like, it's kind of been really disappointing, actually, that the fans haven't got to see them in real life. We're like halfway through and we're already sat here thinking that Alex Morgan's been in the Women's Super League. She's been here and she's gone. Um, and, you know, we, myself and Susie, obviously, we're lucky enough to 
to be able to watch her live for Tottenham. But the, there's so many fans that, that didn't have that chance. I think there was one game at the Hive, um, one home game, where there was a limited number of fans allowed in. So I think, yeah, we, we've definitely really appreciated our jobs probably even more and, and how privileged we are to to see the action up close rather than kind of relying on, on TV, I suppose, as, as a lot of the fans are. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Alex Morgan thing kind of, again, just one of the many moments where you felt like, oh gosh, it would be so good if fans could come and, come and watch it. I was lucky I covered Spurs Reading for uh, Radio Wales because obviously Reading have that little Welsh contingent contingent, and it was Alex Morgan's first appearance for Reading and I just thought I am so so lucky to be here even though she only played for 10-15 minutes but you know it was just one of the many many moments this season where you think gosh it's so sad that this stadium you know doesn't have anyone here to witness it um, but we'll kick off with the WSL um, you've both kind of answered my first question anyway, but in terms of uh, the title race, Chelsea now five points ahead of second place, Man City. Susie, you know, you've said it's it's still wide open. Realistically, who, who do you see sitting at the top of the table at the end of the season or who, who would you guys like to see there? I find it hard to look beyond Chelsea. I think the only thing that could um, maybe be a stumbling block for them is just the sheer volume of games they've got. And, you know, obviously uh, postponements and things haven't helped with that. But then with the Champions League, with the FA Cup, with um, the Conti Cup when it restarts, like all of those things coming together, it's going to be quite intense. They've got the squad to do it, though. So that's why I think they'll still be up there. But um, City have really been exciting me of late. It's been a long time since I've been excited about watching City. Like, it's always, even when they've been on decent winning runs, it's always felt a little bit like they're just going through the motions. But there's um, an energy to that front three in particular that is just really, really exciting. Um, Obviously, Lauren Hemp and uh, Chloe Kelly contributing massively to that. Uh, Just the way they play, the pace of the game that they play, um, the accuracy of it, it's just really, really refreshing. So um, I think they'll push Chelsea hard, but I find it really, really difficult to look beyond Chelsea, given the, the strength of their squad across the board. Molly, are you kind of, yeah, where are you, what are your thoughts on, on the top four and, and how you foresee it unfolding between now and the end of the season? Yeah, I think I think quite similar to what Cece said, really. I think before Christmas, so like just before the winter break, we were probably looking at it and thinking that Chelsea's biggest competition was Chelsea, where themselves with, with the, just the amount of fixtures that they're, they're almost a victim of their own success in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, how obviously they've got the Continental Cup final, the Champions League, which we know, particularly this stage coming up, is is really competitive now. You know that we've, we've sort of gone past the stage of easy games in the Champions League. And, you know, particularly drawing Atletico Madrid, probably got the hardest one of the lot. Um, but in a way, when it was Chelsea and Manchester United that it looked like for the title, I was more worried about the fixture congestion for Chelsea back then, because obviously United don't have the Champions League, didn't have as many midweek fixtures. Whereas now it looks like it's more between Chelsea and City. They've both sort of got the same problem. Um and in that respect, you'd probably give the advantage to Chelsea, just the experience of, of Emma Hayes. You know, she's been here, she's done it. A lot of the players in that Chelsea team have, have been here and done it as well. And I think, for me, yeah, I completely agree with Susie on the fact that Manchester City have been great to watch in, in recent weeks. And actually, 
you think if they can keep hold of the US players, which I believe they're on two-year deals rather than the one-year deals that we've seen for, for some of the others that have come over, they can keep them for next season as well. Then actually next season, I think they, they will really hit the ground running because you've got to remember how, I mean, poor is a strong word, but they, they weren't great at the beginning of the season. You know, they, they really struggled against games that you would have said they needed to win if they had any hope of the title. But they've just been that good since that they, they, they're still in it. You know, the, the game in April between Chelsea and City barring any other strange results, will probably decide it. So I think it's really exciting if you're a City fan looking ahead to next season and really building on this, what they've done so far. And obviously Gareth Taylor's come in, again, in a pandemic, well, certainly wasn't ideal um, introduction for him, but they, they seem to have really gelled together. And I think, yeah, I think that for me, probably the Champions League race is as exciting as the title race, just because Manchester United started so well that if they don't end up getting that third spot, it's going to feel like such a disappointment. And I'm sort of torn about how I feel about it because in a way, they are a little bit of a victim of their own success. If they'd have finished fourth at the start of the season, that's maybe where we expected them to finish. But now if they finish fourth, we're going to be thinking, oh, they should have done a bit better considering where they were sort of at Christmas so I think that race will be really interesting. And then obviously the, the ramifications of that for Arsenal, um, the manager, Jerome tomorrow, whether whether fourth is enough for, for a team of, of Arsenal's kind of history and stature. So I, I think that race is really one to keep an eye on in the coming weeks. The exciting thing, though, is that at the start of this month, we were looking at that week with the Arsenal-City game, the Chelsea-Arsenal game and the Man United-Man City game as the defining week where if all of this was going to be solved and worked out and we'd know roughly where everyone was going to finish at the end of the season. And then United lose to Reading and Chelsea lose to Brighton and it just... They're results that don't happen in this league. Yeah. And that's what's exciting now is that we can we can try and predict it, but if we get any more rogue results like that, it's going to... Like, with so few points on the table across a 12-team league, it completely changes things. So that, for me, is what is the most exciting thing. But yeah, I think, I think if anything, the race for Champions League is going to be more exciting than the title race at this stage, as Molly was saying. Yeah, absolutely. Just a reminder, Man City played Fiorentina and Chelsea, like you guys have mentioned, face Atletico. So two massive, massive games for the English clubs. Um, guys, then down at the bottom of the WSL, Again, what have you made of it? Incredibly tight between, you know, those four, five teams. Bristol, bless them, have had sort of the season of nightmares, but they're only two points away from safety. What have you made of everything at the bottom end of the table? Yeah, I think it's 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 almost become a, a Matt Beard <laughs> relegation battle. Um, because for me now, looking at the table, it's probably going to be between West Ham and Bristol. Um Obviously, Matt Beard started off the season at West Ham. They mutually agreed to part ways. Um, Ollie Harder has come into West Ham, which is a a really, really tough job. Like maybe people didn't know too much about Ollie Harder before he came in, but he does have a, a, a strong history, a strong experience in the women's game all over the world. But it's an entirely new prospect to be thrown into a relegation battle, sort of like as soon as as you're in the job new league, new players. Um, so I think, in a way, Matt Beard leaving West Ham and going to Bristol 
is what has actually made the relegation battle because you might have just assumed that if Beard had stayed at West Ham, they would have been all right. He has that experience. Um, and obviously he's come into Bristol and and they were improving anyway. I think you could say there were there were signs um, of them improving, um, particularly Ebony Salmon has been incredible for them um, and has been so pivotal in, in pretty much all of the points that they have actually managed. Um, but yeah, I think it's been a weird one for the teams sort of like Tottenham and Brighton because... In some weeks you're thinking they're absolutely in this battle and then they'll, they'll win. And like particularly the Brighton-Chelsea result, nobody saw that coming, but suddenly that win is probably enough to keep them out of it. Um, so I think in that respect, there have been, been teams that have looked there or thereabouts, but now it, to me, it's West Ham or Bristol, I think, that will, that will go down. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I think the, the draw between the two sides was... A, a bit of an indication that they're going to sort of end up stuck where they are with Bristol going down and West Ham just above them personally. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously impossible to predict. I think we are seeing a little bit of a resurgence of Bristol under Beard. I think, you know, not no disrespect to um, Tanya Oxterby, who I think is a fantastic manager, but, you know, sometimes just a change of scene when you're losing can help, uh, help help just reset things a little bit and refresh things a little bit. And like I think that has given them a little bit of a, a mini new manager bounce without having a new manager. I completely agree with what Molly said about um, Ollie Harder and the job he's got. And he is a, you know, he's a very good manager. He's got a lot of experience in the women's game. But one of the things that um, I found quite surprising was the amount of, the amount of experience they, they, sort of let go in the in the January window without necessarily replacing sort of like for like when potentially if anything they needed to strengthen so letting uh, Alicia Lehman go out on loan to Everton letting um, Cho Sohyun go out to on loan to Tottenham then you've got obviously Rachel Daly going back to the US Ruby Grant starting college and they've brought in players but those the players that they've brought in haven't got women's Super League experience they've mm-hmm. not got the even even women's championship experience would, would be helpful. You know, they signed a player from Iceland, one from the University of North Carolina, and um, re-signed uh, Van Egmond from Orlando Pride. Decent players, but no or very limited women's Super League experience. No experience of a battle at the bottom of a table. No experience of the battle, battle at the top of the championship. Um, I just feel like they needed some, some grit in terms of that experience of, of those kind of battles coming in to replace those players that are outgoing. And I, I think they're really, really going to struggle over the next few weeks. Mm. Um, if whether the Matt Beard bounce is enough to pop uh, Bristol above them, um, I, you know, I think it's unlikely, but you never know. Absolutely. And then in terms of the championship on the podcast this season, we've been loving it. It's been so competitive. It's been a great league um, to watch and, and to keep an eye on, which I think is a, you know, a really healthy sign of the women's game in this country right now. The top, you know, Durham, Leicester, Sheffield United, you know, it's still so, so tight, very hard to predict, you know, who will get promoted. Molly, who do you see playing in the WSL next season? Or I'll change it, who, who would you like to see in the WSL next season? I think, as you say, it, 
firstly, it's worth saying just how, how impressive the Championship has been this season. And not just on the pitch, but the, the efforts of the players off it, considering the majority of them are part-time. You know, they've been doing day jobs. They've probably experienced, you know, certainly some of them are, are key workers, been on the front line in the pandemic and I've still managed to, to to kind of produce this this brilliant spectacle of competitive football. So I think that's a, that's a credit to all of the teams and all of the players. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's culminated in this this title race, I would say. Um, probably Sheffield United are, are going to fall a bit short this season, I think. I think it is between between Durham and Leicester. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's sort of a, sh- a strange kind of difference between the two teams we've got Leicester who have sort of fairly recently really introduced um, a lot more finances obviously they're they're professional sharing facilities with the men's team and then you have a club in Durham which is sort of the traditional women's football team the the one that's sort of independent and has over many many years have slowly built this level of professionalism and they're not yet there yet but they're sort of a, a hybrid model Mm. where they're not quite professional but they're a little bit more than part-time and they've done that by you know working with local businesses and 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 just doing a really good job so it's sort of a a strange sort of they're both on these two different paths but both trying to get um they're trying to get promotion I think realistically who will have the funds and the infrastructure to mean they'll compete better as a WSL team Probably Leicester if you're talking the long term, but you look at Durham and they're just there or thereabouts. Manchester United probably struggled more against them than any other team when they were playing in the championship. And they're so, so impressive. They're just really difficult to play against. And I think that that's something that ultimately, obviously the Durham-Leicester game that got postponed last weekend probably would have decided the title. And that's where I wouldn't be at all surprised if Durham Durham ended up going up because just in those head-to-heads, they've got the experience, they're difficult to play against, they know how to defend, and they're not afraid, afraid to defend either. And I think I wouldn't be at all surprised if we saw Durham in, in the Women's Super League next season. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, I think it's really, really... I was going to say heartwarming. That's a bit patronising. I really love seeing Durham up there fighting as a as an independent club, still competing against these sides that are putting quite a bit of money in. You know, talking London City, Leicester, Sheffield, uh, not as much, but you know, even Liverpool. And you've got Durham still up there competing, and then Lewis in sixth, who have really pushed on from um, from last season and pulled off some quite surprising results at times. Seeing those two teams start to take a bit of ownership of this league for me is really really exciting um I completely agree though Leicester are the best equipped for the Women's Super League so from that point of view uh, you know like I I kind of you know almost want them to go up because I want to see the Women's Super League um stay as competitive as it is but at the same time you know any team that earns that position obviously deserves to be there um, and it would great to see a an, an independent club back in the women's super league um working out how you manage um to compete with clubs with significantly larger resources 
Um, I think that'd be very exciting. So from a sort of a, a, a head point of view, I'd say Leicester. From a heart point of view, I'd say Durham because um, you've got this, you know, this really exciting dynamic of, uh, of ownership and sponsorship and stuff that, that could be exciting to watch in the Women's Super League, especially as it grows. You know, at the, the bigger the Women's Super League gets, the easier it's going to be for the independent teams to attract sponsorship and support because... Just being there is enough to 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 warrant some some attention. So, yeah, I I think Leicester will do it. I'd like to see Durham do it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm disappointed to see Liverpool where they are. Yeah, I wanted to quickly ask about Liverpool. Actually, I think a lot of people prior to the season starting was expecting them to bounce straight back up. That certainly hasn't ha- happened. They've had they've had. They have struggled. Uh, Susie, just really quickly, because I'm conscious of time, you know, what, what have you made of their situation? And are you surprised, like many of us, to, to see them where they are? I'm not surprised, to be honest, um, because there's n- there's never been any indication that there, there's a shift in mentality at the club that would give us any indication that suddenly they're going to start taking the women's team seriously. Um, you know, the announcement of the, or the unveiling of the um the new training facility for the men's team in the summer and no space for the women's team there, you know, is, is, is a hint that despite having been relegated to the championship, there was no plans to, to necessarily do much more for the women's team. But I think we're going to see more clubs um, start to be confronted with, um, with this in the WSL as well. Teams are investing. And if you want to compete in that league, you have to invest. So there's there's no room for teams to just coast along with the same investment every single year. And, you know, this this kind of hope that they will still be competitive because uh, everyone is sort of the same. When you've got teams like Leicester, like Chelsea, putting money in at the top of those divisions, it challenges the rest. And some are going to respond to that, like the Man Uniteds, um, and some aren't. And they're going to fall away, like the Liverpools and... Yeah, I think we're going to see that as everywhere increases their investment, that's when we're going to start to see those gaps um, and the the mentalities of whether they actually care enough about the women's team be exposed. Yeah, absolutely. Some really, really valid points there. Um, and in terms of then the national national sides, I think it's 500 days until the Euros. I saw on Twitter this morning, really exciting cannot wait um we'll touch on the lionesses um to begin with it's been a bit of a year obviously phil never left serena vegeman will will take over in september or august a- a- after the olympics in the meantime i think the appointment of hegel reese is just one of the most respected figures in the women's game the fact she's in as as interim manager i think was a welcome decision by many the neville era perhaps one that was quite hard to assess at times with all the noise kind of in the background. But Molly, you get the feeling that it's the start of a really bright new era for England. I think you sort of summed it up pretty well there, the kind of chaos of of the last the last year, actually probably the last two years really since, um, since the World Cup, I suppose you could pinpoint Phil Neville always used this kind of climbing the mountain analogy that they'd sort of nearly got to the top and they needed to kind of start again. And they never really did. And yeah, you're right. It it was hard to assess at times because of the pandemic. The Lionesses just haven't played in so long. Um, It's almost a year. Myself and Susie were were at the She Believes Cup this time last year, um, which again, obviously was really disappointing for the Lionesses. Um, yeah, repping, repping the shirt there. Um, 
So I think a new era, yes. For me, I think this particular period between now and the end of the Olympics is so, so difficult because you look at Team GB, they've got an incredible number of players to select from for that tiny, tiny squad. You've probably got somebody in Hegarisa who, who hasn't known a huge amount about the players that's come in fairly new. It, will it be her? We don't know if she'll be head coach in Tokyo yet. That's going to be made after this camp. But it is um, a big, big challenge because actually if you select the right team and if they're playing well, they can go and win that gold medal. 100% they've got the quality there. But it's just, it's this strange period before Serena Viedman comes in um, that I think will be really interesting and exciting to watch actually for the fans it's almost like a one-off. It's like a free hit that this this tournament in in Tokyo, and I think we're really all really excited to see how England, well, Team GB will get on. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think I said in a piece that's just come out this morning that the FA have sort of through all this chaos have had their shack thrown into a tornado, and it's come out perfect with a little picket fence around it, all ready to go. Um, in Hegarisa and uh, and Rianne Wilkinson coming in because they've both between them got a huge amount of Olympic experience as well. You know, Wilkinson's won bronze at the Olympics twice. Hegarisa won gold in 2000 herself. She was um, involved in the coaching setup when the US Women's National Team won gold in 2012. Like, they've got this package there that would be perfect for the Olympics. So I'm a big advocate of them getting the, that job um, and taking that on but yeah hugely exciting time and I think yeah a, a real opportunity to refresh they just have to beat Northern Ireland though if they don't beat Northern Ireland then I think it's gonna look pretty bleak making small changes to your lifestyle could improve your chances of staying healthier longer start now by taking our free how are you quiz just search one you because we touched on Ebony Salmon um, and just the fantastic season that she's had for Bristol. Just briefly, you know, she's been called up. There was some controversy about there being no black players in the squad included, which um, got quite a lot of attention on social media. Just quickly, we've touched on her on re- already, but how chuffed you to see Ebony Salmon, you know, join up with the squad? Because I think it, it's richly deserved. Yeah, I think it. it- it is really exciting and I think it's a mark of just how good she's been that when Heger has come in and has got a smaller squad that she, she's openly said and the FA have said is part of looking ahead to Tokyo and looking ahead to smaller squads and trying to you know really streamline that talent that they think she's good enough to, to come in and it's not a token call-up that she has been so good for Bristol and her form has deserved it that, you know, she, she's more than capable of of playing alongside all of those sort of established England players. Um, mm. And I think it'd be really good for her development. I think throughout, even when she was at Aston Villa initially, then she went to Manchester United, her talent has always been there to see the qualities that she has, you know, her pace, the, the deadliness of her finishing. It's always just been about about that final decision, I think, sometimes in Ebony's game. And that's something that in the last 12 months, she's, she's completely sort of transformed. And now we look at her for Bristol and she has been the decision maker. She's not that sort of, you know, player that once in a while can produce a moment of magic. Actually, she's been consistently doing it in a team that haven't had a lot of the ball, haven't had 
many chances when they have come to her, she's put them away. And I think that that's the real elevation of her game and kind of development in her going from a youth player, a talent to somebody that actually can be an international and and somebody to be relied upon. Yeah, absolutely. Go on, Susie. I completely completely agree. Um, There's this just like new maturity to her game that is really exciting. Um, That like Molly said, you know, she's been given this opportunity because you watch her now and you think, well, how, how much better could she be with a stronger team around her? Like, and I think that's why she's getting called into the England squad now. But, um, I think it's it's almost a shame in a way that it that she's been called up at, at the same time that you've got this um, uh, you know this outcry over a lack of BAME players in the England squad, which is completely mm-hmm. legitimate, and there is a big problem there. Um, but mm-hmm. it's a much deeper problem, and I don't think uh, um, you know I think any any kind of um, indication that or belief that ebony salmon is there just to oh no plug that gap quick Mm -hmm. is completely wrong i don't think anyone at the fa would be stupid enough to be honest to go yeah this will solve that big pr problem we've got there because it's a much deeper problem and they know it and they've talked very vocally about all of the different things in coaching and at grassroots and in academy levels that they're they're trying to do to make uh, make the situation better. Um, so I think it's a disservice to Emma uh, to Ebony that 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 sort of happened at the same time and she's getting hit with that a little bit because she hundred percent deserves to be there um, and it's really exciting that she's there. Yeah, like she like I can't wait to see if she gets a chance. Um, off the bench, possibly against Northern Ireland. Just to see her a part of that dynamic and a part of that group, I think, is really great. Yeah, absolutely. Bristol's my closest WSL team, so I've watched them over the years. And, yeah, I'm just chuffed for her because I've I've loved watching her develop for Bristol. And now seeing her get a chance for, for the Lionesses is absolutely fantastic. Um, just a word on Northern Ireland. Obviously, they've got this friendly against England. They're just two games away from potentially reaching, you know, their first major tournament. Molly, just how much of an achievement would that be for them? Yeah, it would be a huge achievement. And I think sort of, I know it's been difficult with fixtures Hmm. and the pandemic and actually getting countries, uh, players over here. Um, But I think it's a mark of how far Northern Ireland have come that they are playing England and that it is considered a challenge and something that, you know, obviously there's there's one eye again on, on Team GB in the summer. Um, will there be any Northern Ireland players part of that? Probably not. But you know what? If somebody goes and, and has an incredible performance against England, then there's not sort of a, a better platform for you to put your name forward. I mean, you look at someone like Rachel Furness, um, Liverpool, who who actually has been incredible for them, one one of the the good decisions they've made um, in a period they haven't made too many of those. Um, She's been excellent, and I think she's probably got as good a chance of any. Um, She's probably just unlucky that the midfield is just so, so stacked, the Team GB. Um, All of the home nation's players that aren't English, the better ones are nearly all in midfield, um, which is a bit of a shame, really, because... You look at players like Kim Little and Caroline Weir and you want all of them. <laughs> There's just not enough room uh, in this tiny squad. So I think, yeah, I think it's really 
it will be interesting. I'm genuinely excited to see how England get on and how Northern Ireland get on, what sort of opposition they'll pose because it has been so long without a game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, if, if Northern Ireland can can get a result or get a good performance, I think that that will be really big in boosting their confidence ahead of those playoffs, um, which, yeah, they'll, they'll feel as though they've, they've got a decent chance of progressing. And a reminder that you can watch that game on Tuesday on the BBC iPlayer from 12.30. So, of course, we all love a, li- a live game. So really, really excited to see how that unfolds. Just really quickly then, before we wrap, uh, my producer Luke completely left out Wales in his notes but being Welsh I'm going to ask you guys about the current managerial situation of course Jane Ludlow I think shocked quite a few of us by leaving her position she was heavily linked with the West Ham job just before December nothing came of that so I think everyone kind of assumed okay that means that she must be staying with Wales Susie just first of all you know what a service, you know, six years with the Wales team, I witnessed with my own eyes just how much she's developed that team, not only on the pitch, but off it as well. Were you surprised to see her go? And, you know, what do you think the future has in store for Jane Ludlow? Yeah, I was really surprised to see her go. I, I wasn't surprised to see her linked to the West Ham job. I wouldn't be surprised to see her linked to the more jobs in the Women's Super League imminently. I think we've seen this season already that... Um, turnover of managers in the top tier of women's football is now a little bit more commonplace than perhaps it was before it's a little bit more results driven you know you have to you have to be getting some results to be able to 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 stay and compete and and be allowed given the space to uh to stay on as a manager now um so yeah I was really really surprised to see her go particularly because of how much she's done for Wales in her in her time there, because I think people don't realise that she didn't just manage the first team. She was, you know, in charge across the board. She was in charge of the youth teams as well, um, and was really, you know, cultivating a really vibrant, powerful pathway there, and, and has done. And like I, I'd say, she's she's taken the team as close at, at, at the at the moment as is possible to professionalism um, in terms of you know setting the standards and the environment and um, and the way they play and the systems they play, um, obviously, you know, a, a, a section of the players are still playing amateur level and aren't, you know, kind of uh, the big WSL clubs. But she's done an excellent job at, at finding a marriage of, of, of those two types of players and really, really building a incredibly strong, uh, strong unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that I think will just very very organically now become increasingly professional as more and more Welsh players um, have success at big clubs so from that point of view it's sort of sad almost not to see her finish that project um, and you know bring it all the way through to professionalism and get a major tournament and um, and kind of feel the the culmination of of that hard work at the same time you know I think she'll she'll be excellent wherever she ends up and if that's on the airwaves still um, doing her co-commentary and commentary then that's great for all of us because she's one of the best in business. I know, I could listen to Jane Ludlow do punditry or co-coms all day, I think. And Molly, just quickly, I guess, Britain as a whole, we want our home nations to be developing and, and, you know, to be pushing and to be at those major tournaments. Obviously, Wales are very much behind compared to where the Lionesses are. But like Susie mentioned, you know, Jane did put that infrastructure, well, the infrastructure has been slowly getting there over the years, even before Jane was there. You know, it, it, it's great to see. And it's something that we want for all the home nations. 
Yeah, and I think actually while while Susie was talking, I was I was thinking that of all the work Jane Ludlow did, which was incredible, which we all agree on, it's that extra step that gets you to a major tournament. And it actually it's a little bit like England. We we've done it, we've got to the semi-finals, and we need that extra step to go and win a tournament. And for Wales, it's that extra step to get into the tournament. And I, I think sometimes that can be the most difficult because the way that we, we talk about all of the home nations, you know, Northern Ireland, Scotland, obviously Scotland made it to the World Cup in the summer um, and actually could have could have gone further, were it not for some pretty crazy games. Um, it does feel as though that that next step is difficult. And I think... I think whoever comes in has got to manage that. You know, you've, you've got players like Jess Fishlock, um, Helen Ward, incredible players that are coming to the end of their careers now. And they've, they've brought the game on so, so far and inspired literally a generation of young girls in Wales, um, which I'm sure you'll know better than me. Um, but I think it's just about now, as Susie says, continuing that pathway and, and, and trying to, to do it on a backdrop of so many countries that are also doing it. And I think that's the thing. Again, the same as England, trying to make that next step. There's so many countries now that have been good and want to be great. And for Wales, they've they've built that professionalism, but there's so many countries that now are doing that. And I think that's where it's really exciting, actually, for the future of international football, generally women's football, to, to have so many nations that have improved so much. Um, and I think that, yeah, 100% Wales have the capability to, to be right up there and, and to make these major tournaments. It's just those those real fine margins that, that make the difference. And I think in the qualifying campaigns, both, both Scotland and Wales sort of bore the brunt of that. We will get there. I'm hoping 2023 is our is our third time lucky at, at getting to a major tournament. Well, Gales, I think that's a really great place to end thank you so so much for coming on it's it's been great chatting and thank you for taking the time to to come on and and chat with us and thank you of course to our wonderful listeners for tuning in and for watching um remember we're on social media and all that so do keep an eye on what we're doing but from myself and molly and susie thank you so so much and we'll see you very soon